0: Money laundering in general is also like a very big issue that these cyber criminals have to deal with because it's like one thing generating and getting a lot of Bitcoin, it's another thing turning all that Bitcoin into clean cash that you can actually use and buy stuff.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cyberwire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University. University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, we've got my interview with Fabian Vosar, who is a hacker. He is so well known for thwarting bad guys that his name sometimes shows up in their code. Hmm. But first a word from our sponsors at No Before. So, what's a con game? It's fraud that works by getting the victim to misplace their confidence in the con artist. In the world of security, we call confidence tricks social engineering. And as our sponsors at Know Before can tell you, hacking the human is how organizations get compromised. What are some of the ways organizations are victimized by social engineering? We'll find out later in the show. And
2: we are back. Joe, why don't you kick things off for us this week? Dave, this week I want to talk about two key concepts. Okay. And this gets a little technical. Oh, goody. It's important. (laughs) It's important to understand these two concepts. Okay. The first concept is a redirect in HTML or on the web. This is when the user loads your page and you take the user to another page somewhere else right now there's a a whole ton of legitimate reasons why you may want to do this it's pretty simple to do it's one line of code that goes in the head tag of an html document you can look up how to create it and what happens is the user enters a uh, let's say there's a company that's been acquired company a right it's been acquired by company b Mm -hmm. this happens all the time so you go to company a's website and immediately you are taken to company b's website Mm. right to a landing page on company b's website that says hey we just acquired company a How can we help you? So that's a legitimate purpose for it. But Google also provides a redirecting service. I don't know why they provide it, probably for some tools that they have, but it looks like this. You type out www.google.com slash URL question mark Q, the letter Q, and then equal sign. And then you type in another URL like HTTP colon slash slash Microsoft.com. Okay, And what happens when you enter that URL into a web browser is Google will say, hey, this page is trying to redirect you to Microsoft. And if you click on the link, you go to Microsoft's web page.
1: Oh, yeah, I see this fairly often. This happens sometimes out of Gmail.
2: And that may be why this URL redirect service actually exists, to Mm -hmm. support something in Gmail. Okay, so that's the first concept, to redirect. The second concept is something called URL encoding. Hmm. Or you may hear it sometimes referred to as percent sign encoding. But here's how this works. Sometimes a developer may need to send characters in a URL that cannot be sent in a URL, Mm. right? For example, a space, you can't send a space in a URL. You can't send a colon in a URL because the web browser will evaluate everything after a colon as a port number. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have a bunch of numbers in there, you're hosed. And a lot of times a colon is used as a delimiter in a query string. A slash, if you want to send a literal slash, you can't actually send the literal slash without telling the web server that you're looking for a new directory. So instead of sending them as raw text, you convert them to URL encoding, which represents each character as a percent symbol followed by two hexadecimal digits. Mm-hmm. For example, the space that I just talked about is a percent sign 20, mm-hmm. two zero. If you've done any work in printers like I did back in the 90s. <laughs> you know that that is a space character. A colon is represented as percent sign 3A, mm-hmm. and a slash would be percent sign 2F. Now, there are tables out there where you can represent almost all the characters that you need to represent as these codes, including the alphabetic characters, A through Z, both lower and uppercase. Because generally speaking, this is just the ASCII text table. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, it's a, a percent sign, Followed by the ASCII value. Here's why it's important. Okay. Because Bleeping Computer is reporting on a phishing campaign that is using these two things in conjunction with each other. Hmm. All right. The URL redirect from Google, followed by encoding of a malicious URL using the percent sign, the URL encoding. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. Here's the thing. You get a URL that says, hey, you need to change your Gmail password. Actually, in this case, they're actually phishing for Microsoft Office 365 usernames and passwords. So you get an email that says you need to change it. And the URL is a Google URL followed by a bunch of encoded information, right? But it's actually Mm -hmm. a redirect to a malicious website. And they're doing this because email security scrubbers are not evaluating the encoded URL and deciding whether or not it's malicious. If they just put the text in there, these spam filters and these malicious email filters would catch it right away. But by encoding the malicious link with URL encoding, they are bypassing these security systems. Yeah, and it looks like a Google address. Right, it looks like a Google address to the filter, but also to the human. Right? Yeah. Yeah. How yeah. many times have you seen a URL with a bunch of indecipherable stuff at the end of it? And mm-hmm. you go, well, I know who this company is. I'm going to go ahead and click on it. All those tracking links right. or tracking data and all that stuff. That, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a pretty clever way to get around the filter and then also hiding it from the user as well. So what do you do about it? As the email filter company should be encoding these things and seeing what they evaluate to. That's first. But you as the user what do you do about it? I don't know. If somebody were to use this to try to fish Google passwords, mm-hmm. this would be incredibly effective.
1: Yeah, it seems to me like it would. Because right. it's it, I mean, it's Google.
2: Right. <laughs> uh, but they're trying to they're trying to fish Microsoft passwords. Mm-hmm. Right. So the user has some kind of tip-off here. They're going to Google and it's saying this page is trying to redirect you to Microsoft.com or or, or actually it doesn't say that. It says to this malicious website. And then you're being asked for Microsoft account information. So why would a Google link ask you for Microsoft account information? Be aware of that.
1: It still gives you the indication that it's doing a redirect. So that should be a red flag.
2: Right. The Google page will alert you to the fact that you're doing a redirect. That's correct.
1: All right. That's interesting. It's a clever uh, workaround to make you think you're a trusted name like Google, when right. it's actually not.
2: Yeah, we see, we've see we seen this a lot. There, a lot of malicious actors are exploiting Google services to uh, get their phishing stuff through the filters mm-hmm. and into into the hands of the users. I, we've seen Google Translate being used this way as well. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it would be that tough to stop. No, yet. it's just, the, the problem is you have to think of it. It's tough for you to think of these things as a developer unless you're trying to circumvent something. I will bet it'll be a very short amount of time before these email filters are wise to this and are protecting users from this. No, mm-hmm. yeah, well, let's hope so. Yeah, I
1: hope so. All right. Well, my story this week is a light one. It's uh, just a little bit of satire that came by that's uh, too funny not to share. This is from uh, something called the Waterford Whispers News. And the title of this article is Hot Woman in Your Area Marries Nigerian Prince Whose Email You Ignored. (laughs) And it goes like this. The sweet, kind, and happy young Russian woman in your area, always keen to communicate she was looking for a good man via pop-up ads on questionable websites, has finally achieved her goal. Three weeks ago, Natalia received a message from Jamal Saeed Juma bin Galatiana, whose name you might recall from a series of emails he wrote to you in an effort to help you manage the collection of inheritance through the Emirati's Islamic Bank. Jamal tried his luck with the young Russian after your failure to respond to his altruistic emails. And Natalia's willingness not only surprised him but also lit the flame of love. Uh. The crush was mutual and after a whirlwind romance the couple are set to wed in 2 weeks. I am full of happiness for finally getting married to kind man. My good luck has no limit. Just last week I managed to lose weight and earn $10,000 a month from home with this one simple trick. <laughs> After that, my skin cleared up and now dermatologists hate me, Natalia explained with enthusiasm, showing a photograph of the wedding dress she got through incredible online raffle I didn't even enter. (coughs) Jamal, for his part, insists that he has been blessed by God and may finally share the immense fortune that Natalia will receive when the funds are transferred with total security to the account that has been designated by her. I want to see you in person. A person's eyes say a lot about someone. Do you agree with me? Natalia exclaimed nervously in a message addressed to her future husband. He shyly replied, I'm taking all necessary steps for the operation to be successful. Jamal has been undergoing a miraculous hair treatment for a few weeks that will cure his baldness and solve any erectile dysfunction, meaning both Jamal and Natalia are expecting to look radiant on the day of their wedding. But no one wanted to help them at the time. The couple feels so blessed by love that they have extended an invite to the wedding ceremony to everyone. All that's needed now is for you to transfer funds for the wedding gift, which must be made to the account of the Emirati's Islamic Bank. End of week at the latest through PayPal, providing your personal data to the address listed. <laughs> Talia and Jamal Wedding. Brilliant! It is. It's absolutely (laughs)
2: hilarious.
1: (laughs) It is. You know, they're kind of made for each other. I think. Yeah, I think so. There's a a picture here. We'll we'll include a link in the uh, show notes. Uh, There's a very lovely couple. There's a lovely couple. All right. So that is uh, a silly one this week. Uh, Having a little fun with it. But Joe, it's time to move on to our catch of the day. Joe, our catch of the day comes to us from The Sun, which is a UK publication. Yep. This is from Harry Pettit. He is a senior digital technology and science reporter. This is about a student in Ireland who turned the tables on an online scammer who was trying to fleece him. He turned it around and actually got the scammer to send him some money. Really? This student's name is Ross Walsh. He is a student at the University of Limerick. You know what that means. So this exchange starts uh, with a message from Solomon Gundy, and it is titled Business Opportunity. Joe, why don't you start off here as uh, Solomon?
2: Hello, friend. Pleased to be with you. I know this email will come to a surprise to you, but permit me to desire to go into business with you. My name is Solomon. I am big business banker looking to go into business with fellow enthusiastic businessman. I want you to invest 1,000 pound in my company in exchange for a half business. My business is all about trading stocks. Last week, I made a small sum of 35,000 pounds. You may wonder why I need 1,000 pound when I have 35,000 pound. I want to teach young business people my knowledge, which comes at a fair price. If you send me PayPal transfer of 1,000 pound, we can begin immediately and become rich. Kind regards, Sullivan.
1: So the student Ross from Limerick replies, My dearest Solomon, delighted to receive your intriguing business proposal. As you know, I'm a very enthusiastic businessman, and I think a thousand pounds is an insult. I have attached proof of payment of 50,000 pounds to get the ball running. One of the things you need to understand about doing business in Europe is we do things big. Please get back to me ASAP to discuss our next move. Best, Ross. So then Ross sent a doctored picture of a transaction for 50,000 thousand pounds. <laughs> and the scammer said he hadn't gotten the money back so ross told him that uh, the bank had put a stop on the transaction because they thought it was a scam and he asked the scammer solomon to transfer him 25 pounds as part of a security check he wrote him back and he said this solomon you'll be pleased to know i have this problem many times before and it's easy to fix essentially what's happening is my bank are freezing this transaction as they fear this may be a scam which i know it isn't as we are now business partners This is actually my third time this happened to me, and the bank quickly resolved the issue. In order to unfreeze the assets, they need to see a small sum of money going from your account to mine to prove this isn't a scam. The last time, 25 pounds worked. So, Solomon... Sent him the 25 pounds. I sent 25 pounds. <laughs> Ross took the 25 pounds and sent it to a charity that helps treat cancer. Oh, that's nice. It is nice. <laughs> so a happy ending here. And Ross says that uh, every time he gets one of these scam kinds of things, this is how he tries to do it. He, he, and he's been kind of successful in getting the bad guys to take his hook and turn it around. That's so, pretty
2: awesome. Hats off to Ross.
1: Thank you, Ross. And apologies for mutilating what I'm sure is a beautiful accent that you have in real life.
2: I will not apologize for my (laughs) Solomon Grundy impression, though.
1: (laughs) All right. That is our catch of the day. Coming up next, we've got my conversation with Fabian Vossar. He's a hacker who is uh, pretty well known for being able to decrypt things that have been encrypted by bad guys. Uh, He's kind of famous in those circles. So we're going to have a conversation with him. But first, a word from our sponsors at Before. And now we return to our sponsor's question about forms of social engineering. Before will tell you that where there's human contact, there can be con games. It's important to build the kind of security culture in which your employees are enabled to make smart security decisions. To do that, they need to recognize phishing emails, of course, but they also need to understand that they can be hooked by voice calls. This is known as vishing, or by SMS texts, which people call smishing. See how your security culture stacks up against Before's free test. Get it at slash fish test. That's K N O W B E, the number four, dot fish test. And we're back, Joe. I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Fabian Vosar. He is a very well known hacker and really uh, interesting background. The bad guys know who this guy is. Mm-hmm. Here's my conversation with Fabian.
0: I didn't really write like my own virus. I more took like existing viruses and made like small changes and looked what happened. Because mm-hmm. I mean, you have to, to imagine like all the real information back then was only available in English, right? Uh, trying to find something in German about like what certain interrupts were doing or figuring anything out really about undocumented functions in the DOS operating system and stuff like that. That was like really difficult. So, so I learned a lot by just playing around and changing a few bits there and see what happens and stuff like that. Later, I actually, I think I was like 14 or 15. And at that point, I already knew like quite a bit. And I was actually considering uh, writing like my own virus. I actually talked to someone on like a BBS, which is like kind of a news board that you can dial in with, with a modem back then. Right. And they told me that you don't have to do that. I mean. The equivalent of you having to write viruses to like truly understand it is uh, the same as if you would say that like a trauma surgeon has to go around shooting people just to learn how to treat the wounds correctly, right? And Hmm. that made a lot of sense to me back then, so I never really pursued it and just focused on learning from all the viruses that other people wrote and uh, trying to come up with ways on how to detect them and how to repair the damage that they caused.
1: You know, I I think it's fair to say that you may be the most uh, well-known person in the world when it comes to coming up with tools to decrypt ransomware to the point where you're being name-checked in the code of uh, some of the packages that these bad guys are writing.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. I think it's pretty much uh, Michael uh, Gillespie, who's like from the US, is also working for us, and me, who are probably responsible for the most decryptors out there. And we got, we both get name dropped quite a bit. I think I have like a couple of more mentions than he, than he does, <laughs> uh, but that's mostly because like he started a little bit later than I did. So yeah, it, it, it happens quite a lot. And usually it's not like a nice kind of mention, but it's usually some sort of insult. I think we don't really have to go into too much detail what those messages say.
1: No, but I think there's a component to it though, where. When you're thwarting these folks, many of who are attached to things like organized crime, I, there's a, a real possibility that you need to be concerned about your your safety.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Especially in the place I used to live in. So I'm from Eastern Germany, right? and I'm actually from a town called Rostock. And Rostock is like the biggest harbor city on the Baltic Sea in Germany. So that means all the Illegal traffic from Russia that is coming in via via ships is pretty much all going through Rostock. So there's like a very real presence of the Russian mob there to the point that the local shipyard, it's actually, it was found out in 2018, I think that the local shipyard was pretty much just one huge money laundering operation for the Russian mob, which is interesting because like the Russian, well, that shipyard was pretty much across the street from where I lived. So hmm. the Russian mob was literally operating right next door, across the street, pretty much. And one of the main businesses that the Russian mob is doing is money laundering. And money laundering in general is also like a very big issues that these cyber criminals have to deal with, because it's like one thing generating and uh, getting a lot of Bitcoin. It's another thing turning all that Bitcoin into clean cash that you can actually use and buy stuff. So there are certainly ties between the Russian mob and at least the Russian cyber criminals or or like the Russian ransomware gangs, if not even like from from other countries. So that's actually a real threat. And back then on my LinkedIn profile, I had the town I was living in set to Hamburg. And I got some messages that said, hey, we have friends in Hamburg. Stop what you're doing pretty much, right? Hmm. And I got sent cryptic tweets that contained hidden URLs that if you, once you clicked on them, it would reveal your location or at the very least like your rough location where you're living in. And what a lot of people don't know is, is that in Germany, you can actually figure out where someone lives quite easily because there's like a central register that you can query And Mm. as long as you hand over enough information to uniquely identify a person, like their name and birth date, for example, they will hand out your address, no questions asked. You only have to pay like, I I don't know, like five, five to 10 euros, kind of depends Mm -hmm. where you are. So that's like a real threat. If you know roughly where someone lives, you can just go to the municipality there Give them five euros, the name and the. I mean, in my case, probably the name would be enough because my name mm-hmm. is so unique that yeah. I almost certainly would be the only person in their entire register, right? And they would have handed over my address. And I was living uh, with my mom back at the time because I was nursing my mom, who was quite sick. So I wasn't only worried about myself, right? I was obviously also worried about my mom and my sister and her family there who were all living there. So it was certainly like a very threatening perspective once I realized that people were actually out there looking for me. When you're
1: analyzing different types of ransomware... Are there common things that come up? Are there common flaws that they make that allow you to do the work you do creating decryptors?
0: Yeah, there are actually like probably about a dozen mistakes that people do over and over again. They usually involve saying that they somehow mess up the way they come up with the encryption key or that they use algorithms in certain ways that make them insecure. I mean, cryptography in general is quite difficult, right? I mean, problems with cryptography, they don't just exist in ransomware. They exist in all kinds of applications. And we are talking huge applications here with like large budgets that only like well-seasoned developers work on. So mistakes in cryptography are quite common and they happen very easily. So ransomware isn't an exception at all. It's just that ransomware is often written by like hobby programmers. So... Hmm they make mistakes more easily. And they also tend to do like the same mistakes all the time. Obviously, if for some reason, they did everything right, and a lot of them do make everything right, then there's obviously nothing that we can do. But in many, many cases, they don't do everything right. And in those cases, we can help and we do help.
1: So if someone finds themselves uh, being hit by ransomware, what what are the steps they should take to get their files back?
0: The very first thing that is actually a little bit counterintuitive is to leave the ransomware alone, meaning don't delete the ransomware file that you double-clicked, don't do anything with that. And the reason being is, quite simple. To have a chance to get your files back, if we can't uh, readily determine what kind of ransomware you got hit by, we will have to take a look at the actual file that you executed and that infected your system. If you deleted that file, or if you got rid of it somehow, then that process becomes way, way more difficult. Because Hmm. in that case, we would have to try to find the ransomware file ourselves. And that means we would have to find like that one malware file in a sea of over a million uh, malware files per day that hit your system. So you're literally looking in a needle in a huge stack of needles. So it's uh, totally fine to use like antivirus software to quarantine the infection, but don't delete it and don't get rid of it entirely. Now, the next step is to you have to figure out kind of what kind of ransomware you got hit by. And don't trust the ransomware telling you its real name. There have been so many cases where there are copycats that try to imitate bigger and more professional campaigns, for example. Like one of the biggest ransomware campaigns was Cryptolocker, for example. And Mm. there have been so many ransomware that had nothing to do with Cryptolocker and that just pretended to be Cryptolocker. So don't trust anything the ransom node says don't trust anything like the ransomware may display to you. Instead, you can use a service like ID Ransomware, for example, which is done by my colleague, Michael uh, Gillespie. And you can upload the ransom note as well as one of the encrypted files from your system to that website. And it will try to recognize the exact ransomware family that you got hit by And it will not only do that, it will also tell you if there's like a free fix available, like if there's a free decryptor available um, that you can use to get your files back or what the current status is. Like for example, uh, it may say that this uh, ransomware hasn't been analyzed yet. And in those cases, it may be a good idea to reach out to a person like myself and send like the ransomware file that you got from your system so that we can take a look at it and figure out whether or not we can pro- um, create a free decryption tool.
1: How do you recommend folks deal with the emotional component of, of dealing with something like this? You log on to your computer, you find that your files have been locked up I think there's a that sinking feeling that people have and maybe a, a feeling of hopelessness.
0: Yeah, most certainly. And I see that with like a lot of victims that contact me. Now, my best advice is always to try to restore as much of your important files through other means without paying the ransom, especially when it comes to family photos. What you shouldn't do, however, is just contact data recovery companies there have been numerous cases where data recovery companies have charged horrendous amount of money to recover the files when in reality, all they did was paying off the ransom and then mm. pretend they had like some magic tool that was able to recover the files, often asking for huge markups, markups that are so huge that they even eclipse the uh, initial ransom demand. We, we are mm-hmm. talking like four or five times the amount they paint the ransomware author and just adding it as as some sort of markup just to essentially send a couple of emails.
2: Interesting stuff, huh, Joe? A really interesting interview, Dave. I love that Fabian explains what a BBS is. (laughs) Some of our listeners might not know that.
1: Yes, good times.
2: Right. His story about the organized criminals threatening him in living in Germany, Mm -hmm. Terrifying. Mm-hmm. Absolutely terrifying. He's right about cryptography being hard. There are a lot of mistakes that people make when implementing cryptography, even when they're they're very good cryptographers. They, they still make these mistakes. In order to get these things to work properly, they need to be implemented properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are a ton of different settings that you need to get right in order for... Your cryptography to be solid, so it's it's easy to understand how people who, as he describes them, are hobbyist developers can easily make these mistakes.
1: Yeah, and it, I guess it's a double-edged sword there because, on the one hand, the mistakes that they make can make it easier to get your stuff back. Right. On the other hand, the mistakes that they make can make it impossible to get your stuff back.
2: Yeah, that's <laughs> that's also possible. Correct. Some things that seem counterintuitive. Don't delete the ransomware file. Mm-hmm. Keep that so it can be analyzed. And make backups of your encrypted files. Two good pieces of advice, but you wouldn't necessarily think of those. I think that's important. Yeah, uh, It's a shame that you just can't trust ransomware developers to tell you who they are. That's, <laughs> that's very disappointing. <laughs> it's also a shame that you can't trust... Data recovery companies, right? Yeah. <laughs> They're just going to go ahead and pay the ransom. And we, I think you've had stories about this before on the CyberWire as mm-hmm. well. You know, these unscrupulous companies go, oh, we can get your data back for you.
1: Right. And then they just go and pay the ransom. Exactly. And try to make it with <laughs> a big markup for you. I think part of that, too, is it's sort of covering the story. In other words, if they are the ones who pay the ransom and it's not me who pays the ransom, I didn't pay the ransom. Right. I paid a recovery company. Right. Who paid the ransom, and so I, I wasn't supporting paying the ransom. So, so possible deniability. I plausible suppose. <laughs> deniability. Yes, but
2: if you know that the company is doing this, does that still make you, you know, responsible for that? I don't know.
1: Well, yeah, these- and right, and some of the data recovery companies don't tell you that's what they're doing, and right. that's that's the problem. That's different. Yeah, yeah. that's a different. Yeah, issue. which is not. I mean, there are plenty of data recovery companies out there that are above board. Unfortunately, there are some who are not.
2: That's correct. My recommendation for recovering from this stuff is just have offline backups, mm-hmm. offline and offsite backups. Personally, you know, it's, it's not hard to make an offline backup of your personal computer. You go to one of these big box stores and buy a USB hard drive, copy all your data, keep your data in one location. That's what I do. I keep it on a um, particular drive in my computer mm-hmm. that is also supported with RAID internally. RAID will not help you in a ransomware attack. <laughs> right. When you're when your files are encrypted, they're encrypted on all the RAID devices. Right. So it's really just helping me in case one of my drives fails. But keep an offline backup as well. Mm-hmm. And these these things cost less than a hundred bucks and you can copy all your files to them. It's a little slow, but you're a lot better off.
1: Well, and also there are the online backup companies that are dirt cheap relatively speaking (laughs) a a few bucks a month yeah you can have all your stuff backed up they'll even mail you a hard drive if you uh, have trouble they'll ship it to you if you need to recover your files more quickly than you can do online Mm -hmm. so lots of options out there i it's harder to justify not doing it these days i would agree yeah all right, well, that is our show. Of course, we want to thank all of you for listening, and we want to thank our sponsors at Know Before. They are the social engineering experts and the pioneers of new school security awareness training. Be sure to take advantage of their free phishing test, which you can find at slash fish test. Think of Know Before for your security training. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of. Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Ivan. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.